Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Dirty Drinks today. How are you, Rick? I am doing great, Sarah. Yourself? I am not too bad. I'm surviving, and I am super excited about our special guest today and um, our topic. Do you want to tell our listeners about everything that's going on? Yeah, that sounds great. It's nothing better to do than sit around and listen to a podcast when it's 15 degrees outside in Nebraska or anywhere else in the Midwest. It uh, seems like winter has arrived and ushered in, at least locally, if not uh, already been introduced to some parts of the other country, a new COVID variant that we're going to talk about today. Um, Omicron is the variant that probably everybody's been hearing about. And we are so lucky to have two excellent guests here today to talk to us. We have Dr. Matt Donahue and Dr. James Lawler. I will uh, turn it over to them to introduce themselves uh, here in a sec. Matt's already been on our podcast once, so everybody's probably a little bit familiar with him. James is probably an oversight that we haven't had you on yet because your journey of how you got to work with us here over at the Global Center is a story that we should probably tell. So everybody going into healthcare and, and has an interest in this area can hear how you got to join us today. But welcome, fellows. We appreciate you joining us. Glad to be back. Good to be with you. Um, go ahead and remind everybody, I'll start with Matt, uh, uh, just about uh, what you do and, and those kinds of things. Uh, happy to. Um, really happy to be back on the podcast, guys. I'm a Nebraska state epidemiologist. I'm an internal medicine physician by background, joined CDC's Epidemic Intelligence Service program, uh, was stationed in Nebraska, and then took on state epidemiologist role uh, this past summer have been with Nebraska for the last two years, uh, still learning about Nebraska, settling in here and trying to do some good work as we're all learning. Someday we might have a real football team that you can go watch a, a game at down there that, that uh, we can uh, all, we're all proud of them still, but we'd love to win some more games. It's a lot more fun when we're winning. Yeah, I, I heard, uh, I heard we haven't been doing that well recently and it's been kind of a bleak couple of years. So well, We'll get it turned around and get it better. We're, we're gr grateful that you're here. And again, we have to talk to you at some point in time about how you frame an outbreak and look at it. So that'll be another podcast for another day, another, another special podcast. James, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself if you can. Thanks, Rick. Hi, I'm James Lawler. I'm an infectious disease physician here at UNMC. I've been part of the UNMC team for about four years. I'm also one of the co-directors of our Global Center for Health Security. Uh, I'm not a Nebraskan by birth, but, but by choice now and uh, came here by way of the military. I was in the Navy for 21 years where I did mostly research and policy work related to emerging infectious diseases and pandemic threats and health security. So um, I thought that this uh, this institution and its history with uh, emerging infections and, and health security was uh, was a great fit and, and really happy uh, happy to be with the team. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen, for joining us. And we actually have a lot to talk about today. So um, I think we're going to just jump right in. Um, 
for our listeners, uh, Rick and I recorded a podcast earlier that talked about Delta when the Delta variant was brand new. And we talked a little bit about how these different variants mutate over time and, you know, come out in the population. So I am curious um, if we could talk a little bit about how the Omicron variant differs from Delta and kind of how that all came about. I'm happy to jump in there. I don't know who you want to start, but whoever, um, that's right. That's um, right. But but holy cow, Omicron is the only language we're speaking right now, so I'm I'm uh, familiar at least with some of the basics here. So it with, with each new variant that emerges, each new SARS-CoV-2 variant, there's three main parameters that we talk about, try to track and, and learn about as quickly as possible, right? This, this was the same things we were looking at with Alpha, when Alpha took over with Beta, Gamma, Delta, Omicron with the whole alphabet. And it's number one, how quickly it moves, how contagious or transmissible it is, how fast it's able to spread between people. Number two, how severe it is, what type of illness it's going to produce in you, how many people it's going to land in the hospital and how many people it might kill. And then number three is the potential of the vari- that the variant might have for immune escape or immune evasion. What does natural infection, what does vaccine do to protect against this new variant? Um, infection-induced or vaccine-induced immunity still looks like it, it works really well, but there's some limitations. So I think these are the three main parameters we look at each time there's a new variant. And out of these three, we probably know the most about how contagious Omicron is. It's usually one of the first, uh, first things we can pick up on because when a new variant emerges and begins accounting for higher and higher proportions uh, of all the variants we're finding, that might mean it's outcompeting. It's moving more quickly than the other existing variants. That's exactly what's happening with Omicron across, across the world right now and in, and in Nebraska. Um, thank you, uh, Matt. So, um, James, can I ask you again, let's just get, um, why do we have variants with, uh, SARS-CoV-2, this type of virus? You know, if you look at other viruses, um, you know, let's just say hepatitis B, for example, you get three shots and you're, you're mostly done. Um, with flu shots, we were recommended to get them every year and we don't know exactly where SARS-CoV-2 is going to fall out. So obviously there's differences in these viruses and why we're having to take this approach and this keeps changing. Can you explain that just a little bit? Yeah. So viruses are are funny little things and um, are uh, their own kind of unique type of organism. So essentially it's just a little package of genetic material that hijacks your own cells to make more. And many viruses have DNA uh, for their genetic material, like we do in our cells. Um, So hepatitis B virus, for instance, Uh, but some viruses use RNA and RNA is inherently less stable. Uh, It's more prone to errors when it's replicating. And so you get higher rates of, uh, of mistakes or mutations as the virus is reproducing itself. And the more times the virus reproduces itself, the more opportunities it has to make these mistakes. Now, oftentimes these mistakes or mutations end up with a virus that actually isn't very good at infecting its human host uh, or it doesn't replicate very well. But every once in a while, the virus kind of like, you know, hits the the roulette jackpot 
and it ends up with a mutation that makes it more transmissible or more lethal uh, or able to escape immunity uh, that humans have developed. And, and again, that happens more frequently with RNA viruses. And it's the reason why for influenza, we often have to change flu vaccines every year because you get uh, this viral dynamic of the virus um, replicating in not only multiple human hosts around the globe, but in animal hosts as well. Um, so every time you really allow the virus to, to thrive and replicate, uh, and for SARS-CoV-2, that's primarily in people, you provide opportunities for that virus to mutate and, and find new directions. And, and you combine that with the background of people who've been previously infected and some people who've been vaccinated, but uh, imperfect population immunity, where you still have a large proportion of the population that's susceptible, and you've kind of created these perfect conditions for new variants to emerge. I don't think it's a coincidence that all of the major variants that we've seen emerge have come out of areas of the world that either didn't have vaccine at the time, right? So alpha variant, as Matt talked about, arose out of uh, the UK in uh, mid to late 2020 before their uh, vaccination campaign really started. Delta variant emerged out of India in early 2021 before their vaccination campaign had started, actually probably started late 2020. Uh, and then Omicron started in South Africa recently in a country where they have fewer than 25% of their population vaccinated, at least at the time. And so what we have are, are continuously providing these opportunities for the virus to thrive in a population with the, the right background immunity rates and, and evolutionary pressures to push the virus in new directions. And until we have um, essentially a large proportion of the world vaccinated and immune, we're going to continue to potentially have new variants that emerge. I want to go back to something that Matt said just a little bit ago. He talked about transmissibility and um, severity of the virus. And I know I've heard Dr. Lawler speak on, um, you know, which one is better? Like as a community, which one do we want more? Um, not that we want any of it, but um, is it better to have a more transmissible virus or a more severe virus? Well, I can, I can jump in on that one first, although Matt is really the card-carrying epidemiologist here. It, it's really a, a numbers game, just doing the math. And um, the, the bottom line is you can have a virus that is, you know, twice as lethal. So you'll have essentially twice as many deaths and, and by um, extension, probably twice as many hospitalizations. Uh, if you have a virus that's twice as transmissible, Right in the first round of cases, you'll you'll generate twice as many cases, and so in theory, then twice as many hospitalizations, uh, etc. The second generation now you've generated four times. The third generation now eight times. Right, you see it grows exponentially when you have a virus that is that much more transmissible. So that's why the the numbers really don't pan out as you get more and more generations of transmission and you get that exponential growth with a more transmissible virus. Even if you have a virus that is significantly less lethal or less able to cause severe disease, you may still overwhelm your health system with numbers. Now we're still trying to figure out with Omicron exactly where does it fall on that spectrum of transmissibility and lethality. Clearly it's more transmissible. We don't know exactly how much more yet um, because it gets a little confusing when you have to figure out um, you know, is growth rate related to shorter generation times versus more transmissibility, et cetera. 
it also does appear that the virus is less lethal and causes less severe disease on an individual person-to-person -person basis. That, that seems to be clearly true. But how much so remains to be seen and how much so in a population where you have potentially lower vaccination rates where, than where we've had large outbreaks so far in, in the UK and, and Denmark. So, you know, if it's true that some of the early data that have come out indicating it's only maybe 50 to, to 80% less, less lethal and less likely to cause hospitalization, we're in trouble then because the numbers will overwhelm us. If it's something more along the lines of it's 20 times less lethal or less um, likely to, to put people in the hospital. Now we're talking about um, a, a lucky situation where we may get a virus that's more transmissible, uh, but because you have so many fewer hospitalizations, it, it may actually in some ways help us by eradicating Delta from circulating in the community and replacing it with a virus that's actually must, much less impactful. But we're still, I think, too early to, to really tell whether that's going to be the case. And again, it, it very well may depend on the population where that virus is circulating. A population like Denmark that has essentially 80% of its total population vaccinated with a large proportion of them boosted, uh, the virus is gonna behave very differently in that population than it may in rural Nebraska where maybe only 40% or fewer of the population are vaccinated. Yeah, thanks, James. I don't know if you have comments, Matt, but this leads to, so the question I was gonna ask was, so we talked about different uh, you know, mutations and variants that come out and Matt had talked previously about kind of the three things that we look at in viruses. So they're actually mutually exclusive, right? So you can have like Delta, when Delta took over for Alpha, it was more severe, more contagious. Um, whereas it doesn't necessarily go to hand in hand that because Omicron is more contagious, it could significantly be less severe. I mean, obviously the jury's still out, but those are different things that we look at. And just because we're saying one thing is worse, it doesn't mean the whole situation is worse, right? So, all right, I, as Dr. Lawler was talking, I thought of an example of this. And I, I don't know, this just popped in my head too, but I, on the issue of severity versus transmissibility, perhaps one of the best illustrations of this in this tug and pull of, of which would you rather have is... SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2. So SARS-CoV-1, the original SARS virus, right? This thing was much more severe. It didn't move quite as fast as SARS-CoV-2. It wasn't quite as contagious as SARS-CoV-2. It was much more severe. Killed 800 to 1,000 people worldwide, I think somewhere in there. It produced severe illness, which meant we could find it where it was. We could investigate it, trace it. We could help reduce transmission through some of these public health uh, pillars of intervention. And overall, even though it was much more severe, it killed less people in the long run, right? Because it was able to be found and shut down and it didn't move as fast throughout the world as SARS-CoV-2. SARS-CoV-2 is kind of the, the polar opposite on each of those scales. It's not nearly as severe the case fatality rate is much, much lower, magnitude lower than SARS-CoV-1, but it spreads much more quickly, much, much more quickly. And, uh, and instead of killing 800 to 1,000 worldwide, we have you know 850,000 dead Americans alone. So I, I, as far as what would you rather have, a more severe or a more contagious strain, that's probably one of the best illustrations I can think of. Um, and... and Dr. Lawler was mentioning also. So it, there, there might be 
the situation where Omicron taking over for Delta is so much more contagious without a, a, a corresponding drop in severity that would land more people in the hospital, even if severity were reduced. There might also be a situation where, and this is exactly what we're still trying to learn about severity. We know it's more contagious. How much less severe is what we're still trying to hammer out and, and really figure out. There could also be a situation where it is more contagious, but it's so much less severe that it doesn't end up putting more people in the hospital. And maybe that's, that's a bit hopeful, um, but I don't think the answer is quite in yet on how much less severe it is than Delta. And could we see some reduction despite more infections? Could we see some reduction in hospitalizations and deaths despite increased contagiousness as it replaces a, a more severe strain like Delta? Maybe. And I want to hold on to that little bit of hope as we uh, learn more about Omicron. Yeah, I think, Matt, that's a great example of, of SARS-CoV-2 versus SARS-CoV-1 in, in terms of how transmissibility gets you <clears throat> so much more. I, I think the other thing to keep in mind is both transmissibility and severity, certainly with this virus and with many others, uh, are highly dependent on underlying immunity and, and therefore vaccination rates in a community, especially because we know that vaccines have the best cross-protective immunity uh, compared to previous infections. So probably true, if you were infected with alpha, you probably have pretty good, infect, pretty good immunity against alpha, at least for a decent period of time. That immunity wanes over time. <clears throat> it probably wanes faster than from vaccine. But immunity against the same strain of virus is probably much better from prior infection. What appears to be the case is when you are infected with alpha, for instance, and then you encounter delta, your cross-protective immunity is probably much, much lower, uh, um, and certainly a lot lower than the cross-protection, uh, the immunity that's afforded by vaccine. And so vaccination rates in the community are going to be an important determining factor, I think, not only in terms of the severity of disease, because we know vaccination reduces the, the number of people, your, your chances of ending up in the hospital if you're infected, but vaccination also reduces transmissibility across the population. So essentially your effective R value, that number we talk about when we talk about spread, in part depends on how many susceptible people are, in, are still in the population, what proportion are susceptible versus what proportion are immune. So if you have, in theory, twice as many people vaccinated and immune, your effective R value is cut in half. And that's a huge difference in terms of how many cases and how rapidly an epidemic will grow in a population. So uh, I, I don't think we should underestimate that impact when we're trying to compare ourselves, even with New York City, uh, which is having a huge outbreak now, but obviously so far hasn't had a proportionate huge surge in hospitalizations. And, um, you know, we, we may not be as fortunate if we are to have a huge Omicron outbreak here. Just because vaccination rates are, are pretty different. So that brings up a really good point. And I have heard this question a lot just from, you know, my personal connections. Um, you know, as we get more of these variants, different variants, why should I get vaccinated if it's not going to protect me as much with a new variant? Why, why get vaccinated if it's not going to protect us as much against the new variant? The, the vaccines are still our seatbelt, 
right? Seatbelts aren't a hundred percent. Um, some people still get really injured or, or, uh, die in a car wreck vaccine is still the seatbelt. There's still a, a, a so much protection that you get from vaccine with these new variants, even if it isn't as good as it was before. Right. So the, the vaccines that we made specifically for alpha, for beta, even for, for wild type, they still worked so well against Delta that we didn't even really need to change them. We didn't change them at all. There's still so much effectiveness against new variants that they do exactly what we needed them to do in the first place. Keep people out of the hospital, keep people from dying. It doesn't matter as much if I get a cold and I'm, I'm, uh, got some sniffles and sneezes for a couple of days, but I want that vaccine to help protect me and the people I love from severe illness. And they are still doing that. Um, and, and I expect they will continue doing that with Omicron as well. One thing we're, we're learning, I think, about uh, vaccines and one thing that, that perhaps we shouldn't oversell is SARS-CoV-2 at its, at its core is a, it, it is a type of cold virus. It's a coronavirus. Immunity for cold viruses generally only lasts, uh, you know, six months to a year. That's why you keep getting colds year after year, right? I think perhaps we, we've expected vaccine to produce very long-lasting immunity, uh, get it once and you're done, similar to a measles vaccine or otherwise, but it's, it's not a measles virus, it's a type of cold virus. What we're learning about vaccine is that the duration from vaccination seems to be just as important um, as the type of vaccine or otherwise, and that that recent vaccine, the recent fully vaccinated status or the recent booster um, it is still doing wonders and wonders for, for vaccine effectiveness for severe illness. So people should certainly still get vaccinated because they're still doing exactly what they should do. I really like your analogy of it's the seatbelt. That's great. Yeah, I think that's something that most people can actually uh, see and touch and feel a little bit because you know, hopefully they put on their seatbelt every day. And Yeah, yeah. You, you get in a car wreck with a seatbelt, you know, maybe you get a little bruise, maybe you get a little cold, but it's going to save your life, right? Yeah, yep. exactly. Great analogy. Great analogy. Hey, James, so some of the other things outside of vaccines that we can do to protect ourselves from this uh, have had, you know, various uh, times in the limelight throughout this whole thing. You know, initially there was some question about masks and then masks were recommended and masks became mandated and became, you know, kind of a, a political talking point and everything else. But at the end of the day, what does the science say about masks and distancing and the things that we've been trying to tell people to do throughout this pandemic to try to protect themselves? Well, we know that those things still work. Don't forget, we went through essentially the first year of the pandemic without any vaccines available. And there were still many communities and many countries that were able to control transmission and, and effectively suppress transmission of this coronavirus by using these what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions. So that is um, interventions like wearing face masks indoors, uh, limiting large gatherings, uh, reducing exposure indoors and increasing ventilation and air exchange and air filtration in buildings, um, <clears throat> doing effective testing, contact tracing, 
uh, isolation and quarantine. So finding cases early, isolating those cases so you take them out of the population and prevent transmission, and then quarantining close contacts. And a number of countries like Japan, South Korea, um, Taiwan, Singapore, Denmark, Iceland, uh, there's Australia, New Zealand. Uh, there are many countries that were able to use all of these tools together effectively uh, to suppress transmission uh, and to dramatically reduce the, the overall number of deaths. If you look at how many of these countries performed, uh, I, I think Japan is a great example, for instance. If we had the same number of COVID deaths per capita as Japan does, so you know, prorated for population, and we had done the same interventions and done as well, we'd only have about 50,000 deaths in the US from COVID rather than the 850,000 that we've experienced. So we know that these interventions work, but they have to be implemented together. Um, and all of our tools against COVID, even vaccine, none of them are perfect, right? As, as Matt was saying, there's no such thing as a perfect vaccine for any disease. Um, COVID vaccines actually have better efficacy than many of the vaccines that we use routinely, but they're still not perfect. And so you need to layer vaccine together with other interventions, these non-pharmaceutical interventions like face masks and reducing exposure to, to large crowds, et cetera, to have the most effect in suppressing transmission. And, and Matt's metaphor of a seatbelt is great. And so I would say that these other non-pharmaceutical interventions are like the airbags and crumple zones and other safety features that are built into your car. Your seatbelt is still the best predictor of whether you're going to survive a car crash or not. But nobody goes to the car dealership now saying, I don't want, to, I don't want an airbag because I already have a seatbelt, so I'm fine, right? I, I don't want that extra crumple zone to be built in or, or these other safety features, right? All of these features in a car, when combined together, have given us the safest cars in the history of driving, right? That's why our traffic fatality rates are so much lower than they used to be. Uh, but you combine all of these things and use them together to get the maximum effect. And that's the same, I think the same effect that we're trying to get with these non-pharmaceutical interventions. And so it's even more important when you have a more transmissible virus like Omicron, even more important to do these things together. I, you know, I, I look at a number of the East Asian countries that were hit very early and very hard um, but had learned their lesson from the first SARS a long time ago and had plans already in place and, and how well they did. Japan, for instance, very quickly came out with their three C's campaign as a simplified way of explaining what interventions people need to take. And so that was uh, avoiding crowded places and avoiding closed spaces, like small spaces, uh, and, in, and avoiding close contact. You throw a mask on top of that, and really those are the basic tools you need uh, to reduce transmission in your community setting. And then you add aggressive testing regimens so that you can quickly identify cases and do good isolation and quarantine and contact tracing. And now you have an effective intervention. Uh, so if we can do all of those things together, we can still dramatically reduce uh, transmission in our communities and ultimately reduce the burden on our hospitals and, and reduce the number of fatalities that we have. And wearing a mask is super cool. Just throwing that out there, <laughs> along with practicing hand hygiene all the time. We're uh, we're we're trying to get my my daughter Maeve to become more comfortable with masks. She's 19 months old, so we're just uh, we're in that pre pre masking recommendation phase, but trying to get her warmed up a bit to it, and uh, mixed results so far. Um, 
I think we're going to get there though. Well, and that's a good point. When we were talking about masking, you know, for us that are able to, we do it to protect those that can't, right? So those really young children or, you know, people that just physically can't wear a mask. So you're really doing it to help your community, not just to look cool. Yep. Spot on. And, and this is also where the, uh, the seatbelt analogy falls apart, right? I'm, I'm loving the seatbelt car analogy, but it's not just that, that seatbelt, that vaccine isn't just for you. I mean, you get the, you get a ton of protection out of that seatbelt, but vaccine, unlike seatbelt is helping everybody else around you too. Just like that mask, right? That's something you do for everybody else and your community. Um, your loved ones, your family and your friends to get, get rid of all this, to decrease transmission. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of like a super seatbelt. I, I don't know. So analogy falls apart there a little bit, but still good. Yeah. One. I, think I'm, I think I'm keeping this one. Like most analogies. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I think it's great. Now, one thing I've been seeing on social media a little bit lately has been um, somebody trying to say, these are symptoms you see with COVID and this is how you tell it apart from other viruses. And obviously now we're in influenza season, we're in other cold seasons. Have you guys been able to see anything specifically that might make people say, aha, I think I might have COVID, I need to go get tested? Or is it pretty much just, hey, I have a runny nose and a sore throat, I should get tested. What are you guys telling people nowadays? I I think it's pretty hard to distinguish the symptoms of COVID uh, from those of, of flu and other respiratory viruses, especially early on in the course of disease, and particularly in folks who have some underlying immunity, um, you know, either from prior infection or more likely from, from vaccination. We're, we're seeing a lot of relatively mild symptomatic cases, especially of Omicron, um, but many of those cases have things like sore throat, maybe a, a little bit of achiness, some headache, a low fever, um, very difficult to differentiate it from uh, many other um, regular respiratory viruses that we would encounter this time of year. So uh, I encourage anybody who has any type of upper respiratory or lower respiratory symptoms or a fever um, to go get tested. I agree completely. And you haven't seen or heard anything specifically different with Omicron versus Delta or Alpha or anything. Has anybody seen anything different? Well, well, and this is all anecdotal. Sorry, sorry, Matt, go ahead. No, please. I was just going to say, Dr. Sterling, I I hope you read the new Nebraska MMWR that was posted yesterday because there are some... (laughs) There are some slight differences here, but I completely agree with uh, Dr. Lawler. It, it is so hard telling any of these apart that there isn't a way that you can tell this is COVID or something else. You know, it, it's loss of taste and loss of smell have been two very, very specific symptoms throughout the course of the pandemic. That Okay, loss of taste and loss of smell, it's, it's like they might be with, in combination with all these other respiratory symptoms or independent or in an isolation of all these other respiratory symptoms. But in general, if you had one of these, it's more likely to be COVID than the others. And we found that with some Nebraska analyses early on and people who were, who are filling out questionnaires getting tested um, people who had loss of taste or loss of smell more than any other symptom were likely to test positive for, for COVID-19, but 
like Dr. Lawler mentioned, there's been so many who've been vaccinated, so many who've been previously infected now that that symptom profile is changing. Um, where symptoms might be milder now and a bit different than we'd expect before. And we also have a new variant now. Um, and I, our report that uh, was just published yesterday described a small household cluster. So just a small sample size, but interesting in that none in that cluster developed loss or taste of loss of smell with the Omicron infection. So overall, I'm not concerned with any one symptom presence or absence uh, that might make or break a case for COVID-19. It's a respiratory illness um, and, and it's gonna have respiratory symptoms when someone's symptomatic. So wouldn't overly rely on a symptom profile for calling it COVID or not. And I do read your Hans, by the way. Well, this one wasn't a Han. This was just an MMWR. But I'm, I'm glad to hear that you read the Hans because I've really been wondering who all those uh, actually reach. And those I are read them. Yeah, Appreciate I think they're today. terrific. Uh, great. I think more information about something like this, the data as it's you know, coming out is, is key, I think. Uh, and uh, having access to that and transparency to it, I think helps us clinicians tremendously. Matt, I don't know if you've heard this, but anecdotally from a couple of clusters, uh, I have heard that people are encountering loss of taste and smell much less frequently with Omicron uh, than they were with previous variants. Now, these are in generally in people who are uh, vaccinated and, and often boosted. So it, it's not necessarily reflective of the general population. Um, <clears throat> but at least in the, the folks that I've been talking to, they, they have seen uh, very few cases where loss of taste and smell is a prominent feature. Yeah, anecdotally hearing the same thing. Um, no real statewide or nationwide data yet to put numbers to it. But hearing the same thing, that perhaps we're losing some of those most specific symptoms to, to call out COVID from other respiratory illnesses, perhaps a bit less with Omicron than other, uh, than other variants. Yeah, so the long and short of that basically is if you have some upper respiratory symptoms to anything like that, the best answer is to go get tested. Yeah, perfect. Way to bring it home. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Don't assume. So then on that note, um, I think like the big three that I think about are influenza, SARS-CoV-2 and RSV. Those all have vastly different treatments and isolation guidelines. So, you know, assuming that you automatically have COVID could impact how your illness goes and those around you as well. I think regardless of your uh, respiratory illness, people who are sick need to stay home. Right. I, I don't want, I, I talked about Maeve, my daughter being 19 months old, like we're figuring out how to put her in childcare now, like, and how that's going to work. I don't want her to, she, she's going to get exposed and get sick. I know all kids do, but whether your kid has COVID RSV or flu, I mean, if you're sick with something, you just got to stay home. And yeah, we have a lot of very specific, complicated criteria around isolation and quarantine for COVID-19. Um, but especially as we're, we're in the middle of a new variant, in the middle of hospitals being full with, with Delta already, anything we can do to not be spreading other respiratory illnesses is what we should be doing. 
So I, I, even if I go out and I, I've got flu or RSV or metanumavirus, which I'm seeing a bit more of instead of COVID, I would still much rather that person not go spread that around to all their friends, family, and coworkers. Agree 100% in my medical uh, uh, employee health role. So <laughs> I agree completely. Um, looking at the, the variant here now, what, what does it look like in Nebraska, in our region, in the Midwest? And how does sequencing actually work? And, and uh, you know, what's the kind of the lag time for when somebody's positive before when they might get sequenced and, and know what to and they may not know directly what variant they had, but are we at the point where we switched over where more than half of our cases locally are Omicron or do we not know that yet because of the delay? Uh, where are things at as far as that goes? Yeah, ha- happy to take that one. We're, uh, I, I'm, I'm proud of what we've done in the state for genomic surveillance. I, I remember first talking about genomic surveillance probably much too late in the game. Countries were doing this really, really well before we really started doing it at all in the US. It was as Alpha was taking over in UK when we thought, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? We're not even going to be able to tell when this is here. When we started, And then we started building a genomic surveillance program in Nebraska as CDC was, was sort of standing up theirs throughout the US. Since then, it's really grown here. Um, we're just some background on how this functions. In Nebraska, we're unique and that our huge academic medical centers, UNMC, College of Public Health, Creighton University, which is associated with CHI, all of them are working together with our state public health lab, Nebraska Public, the the NPHL, Nebraska Public Health Lab, and with this state. Some other states, you have all these different uh, academic medical centers kind of doing their own thing, not wanting to play ball. That makes things a bit more complicated, makes genomic information less useful overall. Here in Nebraska, Everybody's on the same page, playing well together and, and helping each other. And that's made this program a bit better here than it is elsewhere, I think. So it, in Nebraska, we're sequencing more specimens uh, than, than the rest of the, the most states in the rest of the region, um, and especially in region seven as well. And right now that's between five to 10% of specimens. Somewhere between five to 10% of specimens on a weekly basis are being sequenced in Nebraska. We always do better than that. Like ideally we do better than that, but comparatively that's at a pretty good spot and that's beating the national average, which is about two and a half percent. We can always do better for sequencing more and we should do better with sequencing faster. But with the introduction of Omicron, we were able to really put this to use and see how well it was working. Our first three, four, five Omicron identifications were all Uh, The the specimens were collected, sequenced, and reported all within three days. So, I mean, this isn't weeks and weeks that we're waiting. Every now and then, we do have a specimen that takes a long time to move across the state to get sequenced and reported. But all of our Omicron identifications starting off were, were within three days, which I think was really, really good. And that allowed us to do this rapid investigation around one of the first identifications in the U.S. and learn a lot from that. And we were able to learn a lot from it because of how quickly that genomic surveillance system was, was moving. Where is Omicron in, in Nebraska as far as proportions? So we've identified somewhere between 40 and, and 50 Omicron lineages as of this morning. And 
Brett, for, and that's including all of them we've identified over the course of the past month. As of this morning, that puts us between 10 and 15%, roughly throughout the state of specimens being sequenced in real time being made up of, uh, of Omicron. Now I get the, the inside of each run that comes off the sequencers. I, I get to see these from both College of Public Health, Creighton, NPHL, and, and it, Omicron is quickly making up a higher and higher proportion of each one of those runs. I expect within the next couple of weeks, Omicron will be the dominant variant in Nebraska. And I think that matches what the rest of the U.S. is seeing too. Bit of a long-winded response there. No, it's perfect. It's great. Thanks for the answer. I, I just clinically, I mean, what we're seeing right now with a surge locally feels a little different than what we've had with uh, Delta for the last six months. So I'm just, I'll be curious to see if we're like 72 hours behind. So what I'm seeing this week clinically, you guys wouldn't have sequenced as of yet. So I'll be curious to see where things are at, like right after the new year, when we look back at this week and see what's happened, because it's definitely has a, a, a different feel now than it did even a week ago. Yeah, it's definitely starting to overtake things. Now, I have heard that the Omicron variant has a shorter incubation time than past variations that we've seen. Is this anecdotal at this point, or do we really know what's going on? I, I can speak to our case here in Nebraska, and then, and then I, I bet Dr. Lawler has more visibility into some of the international and, and other work going on that might answer that. But for, for our cluster here, that was one of the key findings. And it was really a unique, a unique cluster in that a patient had traveled and brought Omicron from, a, 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 from another country. And that that Omicron strain that the patient brought back matched exactly the Omicron strain that we found in that family around that first patient. So because they all matched 100% and because it was one of the first ones in the U.S., we could say pretty confidently that they all got it from, from the patient that returned and gave it to the rest of the household. And because it was the same virus, the, one of the first introductions, we could then count from the earliest possible exposure to when the rest of the family got sick. So you unique cluster that gave us some insight into time from exposure to symptom onset, and that's your incubation period, right? And we did find in that cluster a, a shorter incubation period for Omicron than what's been described with Delta or with uh, uh, previous variants, three days rather than four days, five days, or six days. Still a small sample size, just one cluster, but that shorter incubation period we found that might help explain how quickly Omicron's moving. Yeah, and Matt's, Matt's story was actually the first clue that I got that the incubation period might be shorter, and that's, I think, been borne out now, certainly by lots of uh, anecdotal reports of other clusters where um, the incubation period has consistently been shorter. And, and I think that more and more data are going to uh, to support that and, and bear that out. And that, that does have a lot of implications, as Matt said, not only on how fast the epidemic grows, but what the ultimate effective reproductive number is, which um, you know has implications about how much of the population needs to be immune. So it's kind of a, a mixed bag of good and bad. 
that clearly seems to be um, definitely causing disease in a shorter period of time. Has that shorter incubation period had any impact on the development of symptoms in people who are symptomatic? Are they shedding more virus um, before symptoms or has that changed at all? So that, that is a fascinating question. And I really wanted to answer that with this cluster. I wasn't able to. So just, just some more background for your listeners here. What, what this is getting at is in general, we believe somebody's infectious up to two days prior to symptom onset, right? So if I get COVID, I'm most likely to be spreading COVID just before I get sick and know that I have it. And, and just the day of getting sick, that's when I'm spreading the most of it. But someone can spread COVID, it looks like, up to two days prior to when they get sick. So it, in our cluster here, the average was three days, but we did have a, a handful of people who got sick even sooner, just, just a little more than a day after being exposed. That opens up a whole new can of worms. If someone can, can get sick a day after being exposed, when is that person infectious, right? And is that, uh, could somebody be infectious even within a day of exposure? I don't know. That seems really, really short, but we got to figure that out. And, uh, I, I think we can figure that out by contact tracing, testing close contacts, figuring out when exposures were, we weren't able to do that with this cluster, but certainly looking at that. And that'll be a very interesting question that needs to be answered. Just to back up what Matt was saying, there are some early in vitro data indicating that this particular virus, Omicron, has better tropism for uh, upper respiratory mucosa and may replicate better there, but actually replicate less well in lower respiratory mucosa. And that may explain why you're seeing more shedding from the upper airway, potentially more rapid transmission, uh, but less severe disease. And in a way, it's behaving a little more like flu where flu has a short incubation period time or short incubation period and, and a, a pretty short serial interval between generations of cases. Um, and, and this virus appears to be behaving a little more like that than the previous coronaviruses. So with that, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to abandon you and, and uh, leave Matt to, to finish up here. We appreciate you joining us. We'll have to have you back on. I'll have Would to, love to have do it. it. Thanks. I have to fend for myself over here, but pleasure to be on with you, Dr. Lawler. Thank you, Dr. No Lawler. Worries. We Thanks, appreciate Matt. your time. Bye. So uh, back to the wolves. I gotta, I gotta <laughs> defend myself against y'all just by my lonesome. You're, you're, you're yes, I, I, the, the lone ranger here, right? <laughs> so I think the other question that everybody kind of wants to know is, you know, we're two years, over two years now since COVID-19 was first found and approaching two years from when we had cases in the U.S. and everything was shut down and 2020 and 2021 were kind of lost years, you know, with lots of, lots of things that didn't happen that people wanted to happen. So where do we go? Where does this go from here? What's, you know, what's kind of next? And, and I know we talked about how important, uh, um, immunizations and non-pharmaceutical interventions are, um, you know, how long do we have to do some of those things and, and how important are those in order to get back to doing the things we want to do? I realize I'm asking you to project on things that you have no, 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 no. I, on, but Hey, I, I get it. Appreciate this question. And everybody thinks about this, you know, I've thought about this. How long can this possibly go on for? 
I think it, it, there's two ways I'd answer this question. It's like the, the fact that COVID is still here is very inconvenient, but it's planned by its own rules. It's not planned by our rules, right? I can't just wish it away and make it go away. It's a virus and it's doing what viruses do, infecting as many susceptible people as it can. It's an inconvenient truth that COVID-19 is still here, putting people in the hospital, killing people and filling hospitals up to the point where others can't get in when they need it some, sometimes. We do have the solutions though. And I mean, we've used these solutions in the past to eradicate whole diseases, right? We've, we've eradicated whole diseases with vaccine. I don't know if we'll be able to eradicate COVID-19, but we have, we have the way of getting back to normal. It's here already. And there hasn't been a variant that's come about that, that uh, completely breaks through vaccine. So it's like we, we, it's inconvenient that it's still here, but we do have the tool, the primary tool, that seatbelt that we need to protect ourselves and to get on with life as normal. We, uh, we just have a really hard time get, getting everybody on board with the same intervention, I think. Um, this thing works well. It's like, no matter how, how I cut the data, vaccine works in Nebraska in real time, unvaccinated people are being hospitalized at rates 10 times higher than vaccinated people in one month in Nebraska vaccine has saved 500 lives and prevented 2000 hospitalizations. And it's like, if this is what the data shows with no slant on it, that I, that I can throw in it. I don't know how long COVID-19 will continue to play as big of a role in our lives as it is, as it is now, but it is on its own schedule. It's not playing to our schedule. And we do have what we need to, to make it not play a role in our lives anymore. We just all have to uh, do our collective parts and, and get on board with something that's going to help save our own lives and everyone's lives around us. Talking about the vaccines one more time too, you know, the definition of fully vaccinated is still, you know, essentially two shots. Um, but how important does it seem that the booster is for this variant versus the prior variants? I think the booster is going to be increasingly important for this variant, um, at, at least for one main reason in that, like we talked about before, it's a cold virus. Cold virus immunity lasts for six months to a year. More than any new formulation or new target, it's just important to re-up that immunity. And most people who are fully vaccinated were fully vaccinated more than six months ago. So we, we can see evidence for the importance of that booster when we look at people who are hospitalized who are fully vaccinated. Talked in other calls before. No vaccine's perfect. There are some people who are fully vaccinated who end up in the hospital. Half of the people who are fully vaccinated end up in the hospital would have been eligible for a booster by the time of their hospitalization. I think it's just because the longer you are out with a cold virus from that last exposure, that last vaccine, um, the less immunity is going to be sticking around and the more susceptible you'll be. That's the importance of the booster and, and re-upping that uh, level of immunity to help continue getting the same uh, benefit out of it. So I, I think soon we're going to, we'll be talking less about fully vaccinated or boosted. And we're going to be talking more about up-to-date. So CDC's new isolation quarantine guidance that, that came out just yesterday or the day before yesterday, I think. Um, when you look at their quarantine recommendations, it's already essentially formulated as up-to-date or not up-to-date. They say, if you were fully vaccinated in the last six months for mRNA, the last two months for J&J, 
or if you've been boosted, you're up to date on vaccine. If you're exposed, you don't need to quarantine because we think you probably won't get sick because you're up to date. If you're not fully vaccinated in the previous six months with mRNA, previous two months with J&J, if you haven't been boosted, you're not up to date. You should still quarantine after exposure. I think CDC is going to clarify some of the uh, some of the nuances of this new guidance soon, but it does look to me like that's the direction we're moving. And I agree that we, we should move in that direction. Are we up to date with, with COVID? Just like, are you up to date with your Tdap or not? And is it time for a booster or not? That was interesting reading between the lines on their chart. It, it was pretty clear that there was a tr trend in that direction if you looked at that chart carefully. The other thing that was interesting on that chart was the even if you've had COVID within 90 days um, in conventional stuff, you know, you there. So it looks like the the after natural infection protection, there maybe was some concern about. And I didn't know if that was a a, a lean towards Omicron taking over and not being aware of that, or if that was just kind of some data that they had or whatever, but I thought that was interesting on there as well. Uh, it's, I, I think that's a remnant of, we, we know that, you know, vaccine produces excellent immunity. It's much more consistent than infection induced immunity. Infection will produce good immunity too. Like it's just less consistent. It's, it's not as reliable as a vaccine. You get a vaccine, you can count on this many people getting this, this much antibody, you get an infection. Some of them are going to produce excellent immunity after that infection. Some of them aren't. Overall, we think after infection, most people are probably protected for the next 90 days. Right? I mean, it's, it's still not as solid as, as vaccine. It's not as reliable, but that's a general rule we've been using for some time. If you're exposed within 90 days after having a full-on infection, you probably don't need to quarantine again because you probably have some level of infection-induced immunity floating around. More of, a, more of an unknown than vaccine. So that's the risk that you run uh, with infection rather than vaccination. Right, which is probably why they left that on the chart. One last question that I have, I'm sure Sarah has a question too, but um, one of the things that there wasn't completely clear on is, and you talked about, uh, you know, the three things you talked about. One of the other things that's important with each variant too is how effective our tests are at picking up the variant, right? And so there was some release, you know, and, and there's always concern when there's a new variant is how good are the rapid antigen tests for picking this up? And, and are all the PCRs necessarily created equally as far as picking this up? Um, so if somebody can go to the store and find a Binax now, which are hard to find or, or a quick view test or whatever, do we have any data on how effective they are at picking up this new variant at this point? Do we know anything about that? Or should people, if they get a negative antigen test but are still sick, go find a PCR that's maybe more likely to be um, effective at picking up this new variant? So we, we have so little data about antigen tests in Omicron, right? I, I can't make any real conclusions about uh, maintain sensitivity, diminish sensitivity, just don't really know yet. I did see the same report. There's like a, a, a short report today where FDA was saying they're evaluating some new evidence. Like it, it's possible that there's some diminished sensitivity of certain antigen tests with Omicron. There's just nothing really like solid to go on yet. So it's hard to really say. I mean, we, we definitively know some PCR tests are negative on Omicron when they shouldn't be but the vast majority aren't. We know which PCR tests those are. Antigens are just a harder story to tell because it, it's, uh, 
it's just harder to quantify the changes in sensitivity of antigen tests with, with new variants. So I think we just don't know the whole story yet. I don't expect an antigen test to be completely negative when it wouldn't have been otherwise, but it might be that perhaps uh, if you're, if you get an antigen test on, you know, two days before you become symptomatic with COVID, if at one point it would have been positive, maybe now it would be negative two days before becoming sick, just a bit of diminished sensitivity. I'd still expect, back that antigen test, even if there were that diminished sensitivity to, to be positive on the day you get sick. Um, and, and in general, a rule with antigen tests that we've been trying to follow is just because there is a higher risk of false positives or false negatives for clinicians. If an antigen test isn't, um, it is firing a result that doesn't make sense based off your clinical judgment where it might be a false positive or false negative, you should follow up that test with a PCR test. If someone out there is sick right now with a respiratory illness, they go get a rapid antigen test and it's negative. Just like I mentioned before, I still wouldn't go be around people because we don't need all these other respiratory illnesses spreading. It is possible that that's a false negative rapid test. And a PCR test in that case might reveal a, a COVID infection. Okay. So you talked about, um, we've talked about mutation with a more transmissible virus like Omicron that leads to a higher probability of more mutations in the future, right? Yeah. So yep. getting it under control now is going to be very important for our future. Yeah, I agree. The more people a virus can infect, the more opportunity for mutation it has. The more opportunity for mutation it has, the greater it can change. And it's uh, these changes when it, when it occasionally can hit the jackpot and those, those mutations create a phenotypic change where it can be more transmissible. Um, that's what we're watching out for and don't want. And that is what happens each time we get one of these new variants that's more contagious and takes off across the world. So, I mean, there, there's never been a better time to get vaccinated like, like now. And that's the, that is the way we can stop COVID from spreading like it has and, and continue mutating like it has been. Thank you for joining us. You better go run to your next meeting. You have to leave. Yes. Um, yeah, I got to go jump on that. But pleasure to be on with you guys. This was a lot of fun again. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Get, thank you so much for taking the time. Yep, happy to be back again. Just keep me posted. We'll do, do. do the same. See y'all. Right. And for our listeners out there, thank you for listening to another episode of Dirty Drinks. We will catch you next time. If you have any uh, questions, please uh, just message us on whatever social media you're seeing this on. And we can ask uh, the experts if we can't answer them ourselves to get you some answers to your questions. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.